It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. On Commons People this week, Dominic Cummings goes nuclear. This is like a scene from Independence Day with Jeff Goldblum saying the aliens are here and your whole plan is broken and you need a new plan, right? That is what the scene was like that morning. Are we lions led by donkeys? That uh, some of the the commentary I've heard uh, doesn't bear any relation to reality. And will planning rip the Tories apart? Potentially, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to defy the whip if I thought that what was being put forward was going to be damaging. Hello and welcome to Commons People. I'm Arj Singh and joining me this week is Paul War. Hi Arj. Hi Paul. Rachel Weymouth's here. Hi Arj. Hi Rachel. And we've got the Tory MP for the Isle of Wight, Bob Seeley. Hi. Hi Bob. Welcome back. Thank you. Nice to be back. Nice to see you all. Hello. Well, we're all reeling from seven hours of devastating evidence on the government's handling of COVID, in which Dominic Cummings painted a picture of a smoking ruin in the heart of Whitehall as the pandemic gripped the UK last year. Among several explosive claims, Cummings described Boris Johnson as unfit for the job of Prime Minister. The ex-number 10 aide also revealed he repeatedly called for Matt Hancock to be sacked as Health Secretary following repeated alleged lies. And most damningly, he said tens of thousands of people died unnecessarily because of government failures. Let's listen to his verdict. The truth is that senior ministers, senior officials, senior advisers like me fell disastrously short of the standards that the public has a right to expect of its government in a crisis like this. When the public needed us most, the government failed. And I'd like to say to all the families of those who, uh, who died unnecessarily how sorry I am for the mistakes that were made and for my own mistakes at that. Uh, Paul, lions led by donkeys was Dominic Cummings' assessment. Uh, what do you make of that? Well, to be honest, um, as ever with Dominic Cummings, you have to sort of uh, try and separate the claim from uh, who's claiming it. And um, obviously, there's lots of problems with him as a credible witness. But notwithstanding that, I mean... Um, I mean, on one point on that, actually, the whole line of lions led by donkeys, the clear implication was that he was one of the lions, um, not a donkey. But actually, you might say, if you're the chief advisor of the Prime Minister, aren't you in a sort of, uh, you know, you're uh, in a very senior role, and therefore, if things went wrong, you're the donkey. Um, but anyway, without going too much into the zoology... You're a donkey advisor, Paul. Paul, you're a donkey advisor. Key, key, key. <laughs> Yeah, donkey advisor. Um, so without doing too much on that zoology, I think what, what's more important and more interesting is his first-hand account of uh, what it was like in the room during that crisis and what it tells us about the British state and how prepared it was for such a massive event like this. And I have to say, depends on whether or not he's accurate, of course. So let's assume his account is accurate. But if you've got the... Deputy Cabinet Secretary walking into a room in almost a sense of panic, saying she just talked to the Director General of the Cabinet Sec- Office Secretariat, 
whose job it is to liaise with the health department on on key issues like this, on emergencies. And he says, I thought for years we had a plan. There is no plan. And she says, uh, well, we're absolutely fucked because actually we're going to we're heading for a disaster. Lots of people are going to die. Those are civil servants. That's the sort of language you imagine a special advisor to be slightly um, not just foul mouthed in thick of it fashion, but also slightly sort of fragile and brittle and um, sort of um, emotional about, but they've got civil servants, very senior civil servants saying that. Now, if that's right, that's phenomenally damning. And on top of that, you've got the then cabinet secretary, Mark Sedwell, clearly not having a clue about the nature of the virus by talking about this idea of chickenpox parties and having to be reminded by a junior uh, person that Cummings had brought in that actually, no, this is different from chickenpox. People are dying at a very fast rate. That to me says there's something wrong there, not just about the personnel, but actually the structures and the preparedness of, of what we what we had in place in the civil service. That's separate from the whole issue of whether or not Boris Johnson was a fit person to react to any advice. The fact is, what data was that were they given? Very little. What advice was there? Very little. Um, was there anyone willing within Whitehall to challenge the chief scientists and the scientific consensus? Doesn't look like it. So at least on those grounds alone, I think Dr. Cummings has done us a bit of a service. Yeah, Bob, what, what did you make of it? Did you watch all seven hours? Probably not, I imagine. I didn't, I didn't to be honest, and I'm probably not going to have much. I, I'm going to have stuff to say in it, but actually it takes the debate forward because the stuff that Boris uh, hired Dominic to do, which is to improve cross-government, to engage a systemic reform, to get the British state fit for the 21st century, that still needs to be done. Now, clearly, Dominic Cummings was hired to do that job, and for whatever reason, that relationship sadly broke down. So let's talk about, I'm, I'm not going to give you a running commentary on who said, you know, whether I like or dislike this person or that person. I, I would just say, actually, firstly, I wish people would swear less. Uh, I mean, everyone can be a bit potty mouth, myself included, you know, but I just think it's almost like you, you, you've you got to have a swear word in a quote for a journalist to want to use it because it somehow implies that you're hard or cool. Actually, grown ups that swear, I think it's infantile and it's a sort of little people trying to sound big. So actually, we should all swear less. And journalists, please stop quoting people who swear. It doesn't mean they're hard or cool. It just means they're a bit potty mouth. So that's the first point. But isn't Second, that the worrying thing, Bob, that this is a senior civil servant saying you, that? You could say that actually it's a culture of the media, that the media are picking up sweary stuff because they think it's hard and cool. It's not. So yeah. we we'll just make the points that A, people can, can, can spad swear less, and indeed civil servants and politicians. Secondly, I don't remember, look, I mean, it's very easy to be wise with hindsight. I don't remember a single member of parliament or a single member of the media saying this is what's going to happen and it's it's going pear-shaped or it's going peaked on. So um, it's very easy to be wise with hindsight. And there were some holes in what Mr. Cummings had to say. Look, nobody's saying we got it all right because clearly we didn't. And, and the most important thing that we need to do is learn from the mistakes and and the knowledge that we now have to make sure it doesn't happen again. And so success for me is, is looking why Taiwan and Singapore and South Korea did so well and making sure we learn. And that, and that comes on to actually more interesting and worthwhile things to be discussing. I know it's stepping back from this sort of human drama of politics, which actually, again, we focus much too much on at the moment. And it talks about the importance of policy because you've got incre increasingly common black swan moments. You've got black swan moment every five years at the moment. These are game-changing global events. Uh, and we've got to react to them. And that, for me, is the important thing. The idea of glorious amateurism, 
disaster for this country. A, you know, it's it's an invented tradition of the 20th century, uh, combining with decline in empire. It cost us tens of thousands of lives in World War I, um, and it nearly destroyed the British state at the beginning of World War II. So the fact is we stumble into things in an unprepared way. It's got to stop. We have got to get our state fit for the 21st century. And I'm sorry that Cummings left without doing that. That's still a job that needs to be done, and we still need to be done. And I see it in the Isle of Wight. I want a cross-government approach to stuff. I get parceled off to one government department and then another government department. So it's like having 10 conversations with somebody rather than one conversation with one person who can then lead a group of people to sort problems. Bob, you kind of touched on it there. Um, you're, you're on the Foreign Affairs Committee and one part of Cummings' evidence, which I found really interesting, was that the UK and, and the UK kind of machine and civil servants and politicians were, were too quick to dismiss the lessons that could have been learned from Asian countries. Yeah. What what do you think that's, what do you put that down to? Uh, I, th I think that's a really good point. Look, our model is not Germany anymore, frankly, uh, because Germany in some ways is a pretty tired state. Uh, if, if we have got to deal, we can't uninvent AI and big data. And it, what we've been in a slightly, and I take, I'm, I'm really, I take my hand off to the work done by Mark Harper and Steve Baker with the COVID research group. Yep. Yeah? And I'm part of that because it, it's important that we actually critically examine evidence and, you know, critically support a government so that we ask it the right questions to enable it to do its job better because we support it. But it doesn't mean I agree with everything that Mark and, and Steve have to say, despite my respect for them. And the thing that that really winds me up is that we complain about on the civil liberties front because we don't want government monitoring our phones or finding out which phones we're pinging off. And yet at the same time, we all grumpily accept effectively being under house arrest for a year. It's crazy. Why don't we use big data and AI, but put it within the law so we know what the law says. And instead we go, oh, you know, it, we can be monitored, you know, really? So you prefer to be under house arrest for a year than rather to have an efficient track and trace. Is that what you're actually saying? You know, we, uh, the model for us is not Germany. The model for us actually is Estonia. Uh, the model for us is Singapore, uh, which is an English speaking country. So it's not, you know, uh, it's nothing foreign, particularly foreign about Singapore. Um, it, it, Taiwan, which is, unbelievably efficient they were 22 million people and they had what 41 deaths and and uh south korea these are models and not only for the pandemic but for how to run a really efficient state you can't invent ai you can't in, sorry you can't uninvent ai you can't uninvent big data so we have to work out how to use these for the to get the best out of the state so the state can help people to lead the most fulfilling and productive lives that they want to do and then enhance you know the the good of that state our state uh, and we've got to get our heads around that really yeah um rachel just coming back to kind of some of cummings explosive claims um matt hancock's very much in the frame following his evidence uh boris johnson also personally criticized where does this go from here do you think and, and what how's the government responded so far i know we're, we're, we might be out of date because hancock is speaking today but yeah, uh, well, just, just to kind of sort of update everyone on the pod on some of the things that, that Matt Hancock's saying, he's sort of calling Dominic Cummins' allegations unsubstantiated and not true. And he says he's been straight with people in public and in private throughout. And, you know, I mean, if you, even if you picked up just some of the things said yesterday, you could, you could see that a lot of um, Dominic Cummins' fire was really aimed at the, the health secretary and um, his honesty. He claimed that top civil, civil servants also had 
um, concerns about Matt Hancock's honesty, which have been, you know, denied not just by uh, Matt Hancock, but also by Number Ten. Um, I think sort of just like what, what Paul was saying. I think a lot kind of hinges on um, on Dominic C Cummings as 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 a witness and and his his motivations. Because I wonder if a lot of people think that he's perhaps, you know, he's he's a former employee, perhaps motivated by revenge. Um, one of the things that struck quite a few people has been that um, <laughs> um, sort of um, Dominic Cummings' fire was very much aimed not towards um, people like Rishi Sunak and and Michael Gove and um, other Brexiteers in government, such as such as Dominic Raab, but um, the Remainer he's picked out as uh, for um, for a lot of criticism. And you know, I know he's the health secretary and therefore had an awful lot more to do with with the pandemic, but. Um, but that struck people and I was I was also going just going to say that I, th I think a lot of people within the public also sort of see the pandemic itself as completely un unprecedented um, and, and the sort of the, the last set of local elections that we've had has sort of has shown that support for governing parties has gone up so it's quite it's, it's a difficult place for Labour to step into to start to criticise the government very heavily, particularly when it's coming from someone like Dominic Cummins. But I thought one thing that sort of stood out to, to me yesterday was that was the reaction of the families, the, um, you know, people who have lost someone they love during COVID and their response, you know, they called it, said it was a very traumatic experience. Um, they want the inquiry brought, brought forward as, as soon as possible. And we're, we're still going to be waiting until next spring before any of these questions are answered. And I wonder, how long that line will hold, you know, because it looks at the moment, potentially looks like the governments might want to try to kick it into the long grass. Can, can I just say, look, to be fair, I've, um, I've worked a reasonable amount with Matt Hancock and I've actually never found him to be anything other than A, very approachable and B, very straightforward. Uh, I'm not going to get into the, to the sort of detail of the, the Cummings allegations because I hope a public inquiry should reveal all uh, and you know it's got to be a learning curve rather than a revenge curve um i mean the one thing that um matt got spectacularly right and the prime minister was the vaccine process so uh, i will just say that i mean there are if you i, I would not if you're talking about incompetent ministers i wouldn't actually be looking at matt hancock for that but you know that's just i'm not trying to be a sort of uh, uber loyalist I, I just think that's fair comment actually I, I haven't known any Matt to be anything other than than straight and and honest uh, and I'll be very surprised if if there are any allegations that can be proven otherwise do you think it's sort of a reasonable ask for families to say you know waiting till next spring is is a very okay long time no Rachel that's a fair point the timing of the inquiry I, I would prefer you know the timing of the inquiry in a timely way um I think it is a fair point for the government to say we are still, it, every time we look like we're coming out of this, we get another round. So you've got a Kent virus and another virus and then things kick off in Europe and now we've got the Indian virus, et cetera, et cetera. So then we have the incredibly successful vaccine programme. So, so well, well, when do you think it's reasonable to start the inquiry then? Well, I wouldn't have started it before this, um, this September anyway. And getting through next winter, if you then have, a, if for some reason we have a winter flu crisis, which is going to be worse than last year because people weren't dying of flu, the government can justifiably say that we do need to make sure that we are through this before the people involved can actually focus because this is going to take time to focus because people are going to want to get their testimonies right and you know go back and look at the dates of who said what and when and when decisions were made i mean i don't think it's unreasonable the the government's time scale
You know, maybe it could be brought forward, maybe it could be brought back, whatever. I don't think it's entirely unreasonable. Um, I do think it should happen in a timely way. It'd be great if it did report before the next election as well. Whether that is possible depends on the timing of that election. Paul, I just wanted to pick up on something Rachel mentioned there, which was uh, Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove kind of were the two ministers who escaped criticism. And some people are speculating that, oh, Dominic Cummings might want to return to number 10 under an administration led by one of those two. But actually, is his kind of backing of those two the kiss of death for their future leadership campaigns, perhaps? I don't know about that. I mean, because Cummings does divide opinion. I mean, certainly a lot of Tory MPs uh, loathe the guy and uh, he's not the guy you'd want on your team if you're trying to run for leadership. But um, I think perhaps he himself said something interesting. He said, look, um, look, never in a million years do I really want to go back to working in number 10. I mean, that's what he said. Then again, he's kind of hinted that before, hasn't he? I mean, when he was uh, outside government, he basically implied he wouldn't really want to go into government. And then he was hired um, by the Prime Minister in 2019. So the lure of power for someone who really loves power is often, you know, quite attractive. Can I, can I just say this? On, on a much smaller scale, I've done sort of jobs that slightly have mirrored occasion, what Cummings was doing, that you're brought into somewhere to come up with new ideas and new ways to doing things. And clearly Cummings is very good at that, at coming up with, with game-changing ideas. And certainly, you know, ideas that massively challenge the status quo and the people working within that system. However, I do think you have to question how you use that person. Uh, you know, in my army days, I had a, a job to deliberately go and question how certain things were done. But the idea of putting me in charge of those operations at the same time when I'm coming up with ideas, some of which are deemed to be completely unworkable and slightly off the scale, is 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 just it wasn't a non it wasn't a starter. So the person who thinks and the person who manages are not necessarily the same thing. And the qualities that make a wacky thinker who comes up with ideas and the manager who then reality checks those ideas and thinks, well, actually, what can we do? These are really different roles. And so it's a shame that Dominic Cummings' relationship with power or with Downing Street didn't work. But actually, maybe that's because he was both manager in some, okay, he wasn't in the civil service, was he? I can't remember. But he wasn't, you know, he, he, he doesn't come from that civil service culture. The, 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 the guruing and the managing were different and should have been treated differently. And I think that's a structural flaw. You don't give gurus management power because gurus are very often not good managers. Yeah, interesting. Well, before Cummings came along with his seven-hour evidence session, there was one issue that was really gripping Tory backbenchers, and that was the government's proposed reforms to the planning system. While on the face of it, it's a dry issue, the plan to build more homes in Tory southern shires than in northern red wall Labour gain seats exposes the fault line that lies at the heart of the party since Johnson's 2019 general election landslide. Ex-Prime Minister Theresa May is among the rebels, or potential rebels, along with former cabinet ministers like Theresa Villiers. Let's listen to her. Potentially, I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to defy the whip if I thought that what was being put forward was going to be damaging to the quality of life or the environment of my constituency. But, but I remain optimistic that I won't have to do that. Uh, Paul, can you sum up what's going on in this planning row? I may have an opinion on this, Paul, just letting you... <laughs> I think you might, We'll Bob. come to you, Bob. Uh, um, yeah, well, they, they, what this is all about, ultimately, is one of the biggest problems in 
in British life, uh, as with much of the rest of Western Europe, particularly acute in Britain, which is a housing shortage. The fact that lots of people can't get on the housing ladder, uh, whether the, the, to buy, and the fact that lots of people who are renting feel as though that as a result, um, they're being screwed over. So there's this whole cohort of people who are, you know, I'm too old, I've bought a house, um, many of us might have bought a house, but a lot of people in their 20s now, and 30s, uh, you know, excluded from a key part of what is seen what was seen as a normal life which was being able to own their own, own home and i think that's where we the starting point um all the political parties realize it's a massive issue and it's a generational fairness issue there's all sorts of problems there's a north south issue um within the south within the north there are obviously big disparities about it so what's the government done well originally i had this algorithm idea which bob and others successfully defeated because it sounded uh basically a bit too like the a-level algorithm you, you trust in the numbers and you'll you'll spew out things that actually people don't like uh, if you don't look at it more coherently so what they've come up with is in the queen's speech and planning bill which ditches that idea but um actually does have this idea still of some kind of zoning for to in, in a way to direct housing where they felt it's needed now um it's slightly better for the green belt than the previous proposals and it, it doesn't have the algorithm but still there's a lot of people like bob are very very upset about it i think that the difficulty here is that um on the one hand boris johnson wants to be seen to be helping the leveling up agenda uh, whatever that means up north or, or in the south and, and so he feels it's integral to, to get people a chance to get on the housing ladder but the, on the other hand he's got to somehow cope with the, the reality which is there's no way you're going to get this through parliament if, if a large chunk of your MPs don't like it. I mean there have been okay just on that point I'll, I'll rattle through a couple of points there, there are I, I think dozens of us um, who are concerned about this so I wouldn't underestimate it. Look, the, the, uh, we are, we're not rebels because actually we want to be part of this process. So we want to help Robert come up with a good bill. The trouble is the arguments currently being put forward are not very convincing. There is an argument that says we're not building houses. That is now untrue. Historically, you can say it was true. Currently we're building 250,000 a year. If that had been our target, and Boris's target of 300,000, by the way, is completely arbitrary, nothing, it's not based on anything. Uh, if our target had been 250 rather than 300,000, we're already there. Secondly, just saying anyone objects is a NIMBY, it just, just so, just so, you know, lame. A, if you start throwing meaningless insults, I mean, who can define a NIMBY? If you start throwing meaningless insults, A, it proves you've lost the case. And actually, NIMBYs tend to be Tory voters, and NIMBYs that I've come across, are actually local patriots. They're people who love their area, who care about it, who care about their communities, who very often actually take a part in the in the local plans because they realise they need homes, very often for their kids and grandkids, but at the same time, they reject the unsustainable, destructive, mass-produced, large-scale, low-density, car-dependent, greenfield housing estates that despoil the areas that they built on. Thirdly, Robert hasn't yet made the case, and I'd love him to do so, as to why we can't reform what we have. Look, if you're trying to reform a system, you know the faults in it, yeah? If we're going to scrap the system for another system, you're going to have the law of unintended consequences. So I think we need to work to improve the current system. And just on that point, a million planning permissions have been given and have been land banked by the big developers. So is that a fault with the planning system? Or is that a fault with developers who are cashing in, waiting for the land prices to go up, inflate their share prices, keep house prices artificially high at, in their best economic interests? 
So there are lots of ideas that we're coming up with to improve the current system, but also to have a sense of aim. If we end up with a developer's charter, A, it won't work, and B, we will take an absolute spanking in the local elections and probably national elections from now on. And we will immediately start to unravel that amazing coalition that we've got. And actually, that's a really dumb thing to do. We've lost overall, with Tories lost control in the other, right? Because people are fed up in part of planning, fed up in part of development. And if you want, I can talk about, I can talk about all this in the in the other right. We pull, we've our population, we built 50,000 homes in the last 50 years. And we've continued to get poorer and poorer than the mainland because these homes are not built for islanders. So what are you trying to achieve? What are you trying to achieve? We're ruining our tourism economy. We're never going to get the, the infrastructure we need because we're an island. I mean, I, I could go on about that, but I, I, I won't. So what, what's the solution locally, Bob, then, for people who do want a, like for islanders to get more homes? I'll tell you, basically, we cut out major developers and we, we build council houses and social houses and we have rent to buy schemes. And we go back into the brownfield sites and we get money to make the brownfield sites competitive with greenfield and we ban greenfield development. So we force developers to work with social housing or we give money to the social housing for the greener, for the, for the, for the brownfield cleanup in existing communities. The council has 35 sites. We will have Camp Hill on stream. There is absolutely no reason to build greenfield sites on the Isle of Wight, apart from the fact developers want to build low density greenfield housing because that's what sells to people who are then retiring to the Isle of Wight. We will continue to support our young, to export our young people. We will continue to get poorer because our working economy will shrink and we will be continuing dependent on, on seasonal tourism. That's what's going to happen. And, and the more you give a developer's charter, the more they'll think, thanks mate, they'll bank it and they'll sit on it and they will be making money um, uh, but they won't actually be doing things. There are three things, Paul, that we are trying to unite about. So colleagues who are concerned about this. Firstly, development must be community led. It needs to increase, not undermine local democracy. We want local planned processes to be strengthened. We want to allow exceptional circumstance and you need a localized system. So it's responsive. Stoke-on-Trent wants to build, build, build. I want them to, I want them to get that money. That brings me on to point two. Planning and development have to be leveling up led and have to be long-term. We have to look at really good models like the London Docklands, like what the Dutch did with land reclamation, like what the Germans did with long-term leveling up. And infrastructure, long-term spending on infrastructure has to go where the new houses can easily be built, which is in brownfield sites. Thirdly, planning must be environment-led, yeah? It's all very well, Paul, you say build, build, and I'm not saying you say this, but for the sake of the argument, okay, you slap greenfield estates everywhere over southeast England. How do you, on earth do you think we're going to meet our 2050 carbon targets when we know that the most inefficient form of housing environmentally and ecologically is low-density greenfield housing, which is car dependent? Yeah, we know the most efficient form of housing is greenfield, um, sorry, is brownfield flats. Now, it doesn't, that doesn't mean to say that's all you build. But if we're going to actually, if government is going to be coherent, coming back to the Cummings conversation, you can't have a, an anything goes concrete the southeast and oh, we're going to be very, very green. You do one or the other, you ain't doing both. So planning has to be environment led. And that means switching the economic incentives. So if you start taxing greenfield sites, yeah, you'll get less of them. And you use that money to turbocharge the brownfield site cleanup. So in a perfect world, and I'll leave you with this point, in a perfect world, we would have every brownfield site ready for development. And then you crack on. Yeah, Rachel, uh, Bob, Bob touched on an 
interesting point there, which is the Tories voter coalition and how it risks unravelling. Can it actually hold together in the long term? And is there an opportunity for Labour here, do you think, given that, you know, how down in the dumps they are now? Um, well, I think if you're talking about sort of some of the Tory, Tory shires in the in the in the south and other parts of the country, um, I would I wouldn't just sort of just just with with what level of enthusiasm they're listening to the to the leveling up agenda. You know, when you talk when you think about things like like the corporation tax plans, um, any potential like. Um, future discussions about any any wealth tax or anything around sort of tax and spend I wonder if I wonder if there are some voters in those areas that are hearing hearing leveling up and thinking that for them it means leveling down in some way and I wonder I think Rachel sorry. On, on that point we are I'm so we are so keen to make this leveling up work because we want this coalition to survive and that's why I'm reaching out to Redwall uh, guys and, and girls because you know if you're trying to regenerate a town you don't leave the brownfield sites undeveloped and the town remaining tired and then focus development on 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 sort of green on the greenfield suburbs because that isn't popular anywhere in britain and in the in the midlands towns and the northern towns that have elected tory mp's sometimes for the first time that is equally important and i think a lot of my red wall colleagues are grasping that they also understand that if we get endless bypass money every 200 million quid that goes for another bypass in kent or nottinghamshire or or leicestershire or somerset or devon is 200 million pounds less for the north because at some point we have to be wary of inflation coming back and have to start thinking about this. I think I think sort of another another thing. I think um, the government really does need to grasp the that love the the social care issue, because um, that's just sort of rumbling on and it's going to become a, a bigger problem. And it's something that I think I think most people in government know that they need to deal with it at some point. Well, one thing I think that um, is, is interesting, particularly as Bob was talking about. The fact that he doesn't like swearing <laughs> earlier. Um, I think I think there's something around around the issue of of character mattering in in some of the the conservative shires as well. You know, so, sort of. I wonder if they'll hear things about like the accusations about bodies pile high, Operation Last Gasp. I wonder if they'll find a lot of that quite distasteful and think it speaks more broadly to sort of a, a lack of grip and and leadership. And I think that's why you hear um, Keir Starmer talk so often about things like decency and duty and. You know, you can see, you can hear that they that he's trying to target exactly those areas. Decency and duty is very, very important, and it matters a great deal to Tories and to Tory voters, and it should matter a great deal to Tory MPs, and it certainly matters to me. I just don't see them as having much to do with socialism, and I think the behaviour of the Labour Party and how it treats itself in the last ten years is a, is an example of that, Rachel. But you're absolutely right. And look, I, I think Keir Starmer is a decent character. Whether he's up for the job is another matter, and whether he can take the third of Corbynite Labour hard left sub Marxist Labour MP with them is another matter and so far that language just suggests that they're not learning the lessons they're treating everyone in this country as a victim and they're not they're just not learning the lessons either of new labor or indeed of of, of, of boris just quickly bob you mentioned there were dozens of um conservative mps unhappy about the planning bill are we talking two dozen three dozen four dozen five dozen well, there are there are i wouldn't say look there's not a hundred but there there isn't that far short of it um, and, and but those are people who've been concerned about the algorithm as well. And I think not everyone has focused on the planning. And some people say fair enough when the planning zones. But if you're stripping away some local democracy and that's combined with higher targets and no can no community say, and it gives a chance in the south for the liberals to revive, then I think you're going to start to feel pressure. 
These things take time to build up. So let's wait and see what's in the planning bill. Look, I know the government was feeling slightly bruised about the algorithm, and I very much want it to be taking on board a lot of what we're saying. So look, we're sending a list of, I think, 15 ideas to the government, you know, like for planning development, you have a lose it or use it rule. You know, you have an idea that, you know, if you're company A and you, you've got permission to build 50 homes, you've got five years to build them because on the, you know, the 1st of June, uh, 2020, 2026, you're paying council tax on every single one of those properties. Yeah, interesting. You know? so, so there are lots of things that we can do to speed up the process, to make it more efficient, but we're much better doing that within green community principles, leveling up principles with public support, with community support, focusing legally mandated focus on brownfield sites because it's better economically it's better environmentally and it's better socially for our folks as well and bob just before you go it's time for the quiz and by the way isn't this i might be wrong but isn't this rachel's last podcast Uh, oh is it yeah i think oh is it not next week i don't think we've got one next week because i think there's no podcast next week Oh, oh, Rachel. This is the end of an era. Right. So don't go easy on Rachel. Just to let her win, can I just say? Yeah. <laughs> that would have to require me to actually know the answer. So. <laughs> well, here we go for one last time, Rachel. Uh, it's the quiz. And this week's is all on big select committee moments. Ooh. Uh, so question, just shout the answer if you know it. Um, question number one, who dived in front of Rupert Murdoch? to protect him from a protester attempting to splat his face with a shaving foam pie. Oh, I was in the room. Yes, Rachel, well done. It was Wendy Deng. Wendy Deng, It was Wendy Deng, his wife. Um, Now That was quite an event. Um, When Philip Green appeared before MPs on the Business Select Committee to talk about the collapse of BHS, he was asked what stopped a deal to save the retailer from collapse. In response, he reached into his pocket and pulled out what? Ooh. Was it a pound coin or something? Uh... No. You're on the right lines. Either. <laughs> no, his wallet. <laughs> Is it a checkbook? <laughs> yes, well <Right>. done, Rachel. <laughs> You've already won the, your final quiz. Um, but, but for a bonus question anyway... Uh, in texts recently published by the Treasury Committee during its inquiry into the Greensill Capital scandal, David Cameron was revealed as signing off on a couple of messages with quotes, love DC. But who were the messages to? Everyone. Oh, no, that was only, that was only one person did love DC. That was Tom Scholar. It was. Well done, Paul. Permanent Secretary in the Treasury. You're a proper anorak, Paul. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> but uh congratulations rachel you've won your oh, final great. quiz <laughs> well done well done rachel and i mean thanks for everything you've done on the podcast over the last few years thank you you've been great uh, and thanks very much to bob for coming on and thanks okay. always to paul uh, unfortunately that's all we have time for this week uh thanks for everyone for joining me and make sure you subscribe to commons people on all the usual channels and please be sure to leave a review and get your daily dose of what's happening in Westminster by subscribing to the Warzone newsletter at bit.ly forward slash the hyphen war hyphen zone. And we'll just leave you with Dominic Cummings' assessment of the people running the country over the last year. It is completely crazy that I should have been in such a senior position, in my personal opinion. I'm not smart. I've not built great things in the world. Um, it, it's just... It,
it, it's completely crackers that someone like me should have been in there, just the same as it's crackers that Boris Johnson was in there and that the choice at the last election was Jeremy Corbyn. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.